So here's the good news. If all goes well, the world will end. And if it goes even better, from the perspective of the Jew I don't know marketing department, the world will end this week. In which case this podcast will look historically and mystically prophetic, which will totally boost listenership. Now the bad news in terms of the world coming to an end is that, well, we just have to sit here and wait for it. There are a bunch of traditions around how it will happen, what will happen, and who will make it happen. And that's today's unsolved Jewish mystery. Who is the Messiah? And when is he coming? According to the Jewish tradition, it just might be you. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that they can do everyone our share to redeem the world. The whole idea of this Jew I Don't Know podcast came from people asking me tons of questions on birthright Israel trips that I never got to fully answer. And one of the more popular questions, I'd say probably in the top five, is what's the deal with Judaism and the Messiah? For a long time, this question really surprised me. Like, why were people so interested? And then I realized that, in part, it was because many of my participants come from interfaith families in which one parent wasn't Jewish. So they were acquainted with the Christian side of the Messianic story. That is, that Jesus is the Messiah, and now we're waiting for his second coming. But since the Jews reject that notion, that Jesus was the Messiah, what do they believe? And the answer is, as with almost everything else having to do with Judaism, lots of different things. But before we get into all that, let's take a minute to understand what we mean by the concept of the Messiah. Now the big idea here is redemption from exile. There's the physical exile, meaning our separation from Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, which was the experience of most Jews the last couple thousand years. And then there's the more spiritual sense of exile, of distance from God and divine justice, such that we experience suffering. There was a time when we didn't have this state of exile, around the time of the reign of King David, who ruled a united Jewish kingdom around the year 1000 BCE. But between the fall of his dynasty soon after that, the exile to Babylon in the 6th century BCE, the Romans, and finally the destruction of the Second Temple in the 1st century of the Common Era, the Jews were scattered around the world and steeped in this condition of exile. To end this situation, the Jews need a Messiah to come set things right. And so what that means when we're talking about the Messiah is that we're talking about someone who's going to bring about historical change. As much as the messianic idea in Judaism is a spiritual concept, it's mostly about what's happening in the world right now. It's predicated on a historical reality that is more about geography and politics and military strength than it is about our inner spiritual selves or what's going to happen in the afterlife. What I mean is that Jews are quite content with the Torah. We're not really looking for a messiah to bring us to another plane of existence. What the Jews have been waiting for is a messiah to free them from the oppressions and oppressors of this world, whether the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Romans or the later empires of the medieval and modern worlds. As the great philosopher Maimonides wrote, Do not think that the messiah will have to work signs and miracles. The Torah with all its laws is everlastingly valid, and nothing will be added to it or taken away from it. There will be no departure from the normal course of things or any change in the ordained order. So the change that the Messiah will bring about is ushering in a new historical era, 
one in which peace and freedom take the place of persecution and violence. Which is great, but you're still going to have to get up for work in the morning. Sorry. Where this historical and political endeavor blends with spirituality is in what we individuals can do to help bring about the Messiah and end our state of exile. In obeying Jewish law, in observing all the commandments, in performing works of mitzvot, or good deeds, in living in the land of Israel. If I and everyone else do all these things with all of our hearts, if we achieve the highest level of piety, the thinking goes that God will favor us by sending forth the Messiah and ushering in this new historical age. So, sure, the Messiah might be a military leader who defeats our enemies, but the Messiah might also be a teacher, a kind of super mentor, who's going to show us the correct ways of living Jewishly and serve as the ultimate judge over Israel. So we're talking about someone that is going to change the course of history, an actual flesh and blood person who is going to bring about our redemption and return us from exile. The question is, what's it going to take to bring about the Messiah? Do you qualify? And how will you know? Rabbi, we've waited all our lives for the Messiah. Wouldn't now be a good time for him to come? We'll have to wait for him someplace else. The classic fiddler on the roof, expressing the particular Jewish fatalism around the Messiah. He hasn't come yet, so we wait. And it may be that we're waiting on two separate but simultaneous messiahs. One is called the Messiah, son of David, because he is a direct descendant of King David. He will be this great king who will rule over the new era to come. And he will also be anointed as the king messiah with holy oil. And that's a crucial fact. By the way, the Greek word for anointed is Christos, Christ. Now his counterpart is the Messiah, son of Joseph, a direct descendant of Joseph one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He will be the military leader who commands the forces of good in the apocalyptic battle against the forces of evil. He'll win the war, but be killed in battle, ushering in the messianic age without getting to enjoy it himself. But generally speaking, what we're talking about when we're talking about the Messiah is the Messiah, son of David. So if you're not a direct descendant of King David, sorry, but you're out of the running. But if you are, then proceed to the next section to determine if you are the right fit to lead us through the end of days. Not all of our traditions, but much of them, come from the book of Isaiah, which really took hold in the Jewish understanding of the Messianic age. Isaiah describes the world that this direct descendant of King David, you perhaps, will bring about. And a lot of it is the stuff you'd expect. There will be no more tyranny or war. He will be the highest amongst all the kings of the world. The Israelites will be returned to their homeland. There will be no more hunger or suffering or even death. The Jewish people will be forever more close to God and study Torah. And my personal favorite from the book of Psalms, he will give you everything that your heart desires. I mean, all of this sounds fantastic. Sign me up. I'm ready to go. But beyond lineage, Jewish tradition doesn't offer up a whole lot of personal characteristics to describe the Messiah. It's more like you'll know if they're totally not the Messiah. And let me tell you... I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people who are definitely, for sure, totally not the Messiah. The book of Isaiah describes someone with whom the Spirit of the Lord rests, someone with strength and knowledge and wisdom and understanding. 
He shall not judge by what his eyes see, nor decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor. General stuff like that. Maimonides in the 12th century got a little more specific. If the descendant of King David studies Torah, observes the commandments, gets everyone in Israel to follow the ways of the Torah, fights God's battles on earth, rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem, ingathers all the exiles from around the world back to Israel, then, says Maimonides, there is no doubt that he's the Messiah. If this sounds like you, or anyone you know, please let us know at jewoughtknowpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to be the first to break the news. But be forewarned from Maimonides, if you fail at any of this, or you are killed beforehand, then you can't have been the Messiah. So, sounds like it's a high stakes kind of a thing. Okay, so we know that the Messiah has to end up in Jerusalem eventually, but how's he going to get there? One legend that I really like is that the Messiah will begin his journey at Mount Meron, Israel's second highest mountain, located just outside the city of Sfat in northern Israel. And this is really convenient, because the Israeli military has a top-secret surveillance base at the top of the mountain, so we should have plenty of advance warning. Now from Mount Meron, the Messiah will make his way on a donkey to Sfat, ground zero for Jewish mysticism and spirituality, and one of the best shawarma stops on birthright trips. Just off the main drag in Sfat is a narrow passageway with very steep steps. It's called the Messiah's Alley. It's got an official historical marker and everything. A woman named Jochaved Rosenthal lived in a house at the bottom of the stairs. She climbed the stairs every single day, anticipating that the Messiah would use that very passageway by her house to enter Sfat. So she sat and waited with two cups of tea, one for her, one for the Messiah, for decades. As she got frail, the city installed handrails for her to use going up and down, and they're still there today. She died in 1985, at 100 years old, having every day waited for the Messiah to appear. And that's just one version of the tradition swirling around the coming of the Messiah. But in more recent Jewish traditions, especially within the Reformed Jewish movement, the idea isn't so much that there will be one specific Messiah, but rather a general achieving of the Messianic Age at some point far into the future. Basically, rational enlightenment philosophy from the 1800s mixed in with the experience of the Holocaust in the 1940s and negated the idea of a single messianic figure, or even that the messianic age is near. So we're waiting for our redemption, but we're not waiting for the son of David to come redeem us, since such a person, in this view, doesn't really exist. But still, in other areas of Judaism, particularly amongst the Orthodox and Hasidic Jews, the idea of the Messiah is an essential component of tradition. Even more so, the expectation is that there is a messianic figure in every age, and it's up to us humans to either choose to live within God's law, and thus bring about redemption in our time, or to fail in that effort and lose out in our lifetimes. In other words, there exists at any given moment, including right now, the Messiah somewhere in this world, and therefore he might appear at any moment, even today. So we must always be vigilant, always be ready, and always seek his appearance. So, who might the Messiah be? Well, first let's look at who it wasn't. The glory, the glory of the Lord. The glory. 
Judaism recognized several figures in ancient times as divinely anointed and messianic-like. King David, of course, and also some of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. But also, interestingly, two non-Jews made the cut. Cyrus the Great and Alexander the Great. Now, Jerusalem was sacked in 586 BCE and the Jews exiled to Babylon, where they experienced not only the oppression of exile, but also wrote some of the greatest works of the Bible. But in 539, the Persian king Cyrus conquered Babylon and freed the Jews. He allowed them to return to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and freely worship their god, and even paid for much of it. For his role in redeeming the Jews from their exile, the Bible lavishes extraordinary praise on him and refers to him in messianic language as a king anointed by God. In fact, the details about the Messiah that I mentioned from the book of Isaiah may very well have been written with Cyrus the Great in mind. And in a similar story, from a couple hundred years later, from the year 329 BCE, Alexander the Great arrived in Jerusalem. And Alexander comes out looking great in the Jewish tradition. Pun intended. They recorded that he showed the utmost respect to the high priest in Jerusalem and allowed the Jews significant autonomy. The Jews were so grateful that the following year, everyone agreed to name any sons born after him. A tradition that continues today, if you have any Jewish friends named Alexander. So he too was written about with messianic themes and language. But when the Romans took over in the 2nd century BCE, the idea of a messiah changed from the more general notion around a great king anointed by God to one whom would bring about the historical transformation that I was talking about earlier. That is, freeing the Jews from the Roman occupation, ingathering the exiled Jews to the land of Israel, and ushering in an era of permanent peace and justice. And that figure, according to Judaism, has never appeared. Though many people have claimed, or have been claimed, to be the Messiah over the years, it's a very long list. And one of the earliest, of course, was Jesus of the town of Nazareth during the first century of the Common Era. And he wasn't the only one. As this was an era of great political turbulence, there was a high demand for a Messiah to free the Jewish people from the Roman oppression. There were a bunch of would-be messiahs running around back then, and pretty much all of them ended up getting executed. This isn't the place to get into the theological and historical differences between Judaism and early Christianity, but the short version of why the Jews never accepted Jesus as the messiah is that he never completed any of the messiah's requirements. He didn't end the Roman occupation, he didn't bring about an era of perfect peace and justice, he didn't redeem the Jews or end their exile. In the 1200s in Spain, the Jewish philosopher Nachmanides noted with some irony that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. Because, as he said, from the time of Jesus until the present, the world has been filled with violence and injustice, and the Christians have shed more blood than all the other peoples. But of course, some Jews did revere Jesus and see him in the messianic light, and they eventually split off from Judaism to form Christianity. Another strong contender for the Messiah came about a century after Jesus, in the person of Simon Bar Kochba. He led a bloody but semi-successful rebellion against Rome, and many hoped that he would emerge victorious. He even had religious backing for his claims to messiahship. Rabbi Akiva, one of the most influential rabbis of Jewish history, hailed Bar Kochba as the Messiah described in the Torah, 
the political and military leader who would usher in a great historical transformation by defeating Israel's enemies and restoring the Jewish nation, which Bar Kokhba did for a very short period of time. Although his rebellion in 132 had some successes, he ultimately lost a few years later. He and Rabbi Akiva were executed, and his fate kind of killed the whole mood for messiahs for centuries. But more interest in the Messiah picked up during the Muslim conquests in the 7th century, and then especially again during the Crusader era in the 12 and 1300s. In the following few hundred years, with the development of mystical Judaism coinciding with severe oppression in Christian Europe, the idea of the Messiah took on deeper meaning and greater urgency. The closest Jews came to declaring someone the Messiah came during the 1600s. This was a time when pretty much all Jewish communities around the world were, for various reasons, sitting on the edge of their seat waiting for the Messiah to appear and expecting it to happen imminently. There was a total belief that the Messianic Age was upon us, that world events were colliding to create the conditions for a permanent reign of peace and justice and the return of the Jewish people from their long exile and an end to their suffering. And in 1665, an Ottoman Jew named Shabbatai Svi stepped forward in Gaza to declare himself the Messiah. And the Jewish community, really wanting it to be true, pretty much bought it. The Messianic movement around Shabbatai Svi spread all over the Jewish world, a mass movement centered around this charismatic personality. It was caught up not only in the historical moment, but he was also seen as fulfilling a Kabbalistic mission, providing a mystical answer to the spiritual struggles of Jews all over. He had his own prophet, too, Nathan of Gaza, as his chief promoter, and commanded a huge following. And then it all came crashing down. In 1666, he arrived in Constantinople and was imprisoned by the Ottoman Sultan. He was given a choice, convert to Islam or die. He converted. The shock to the Jewish world was profound. We might still haven't gotten over it yet. It's like if Barack Obama suddenly admitted that he really was a secret Muslim spy for Russia this whole time. Shabbatai Svi's conversion was so traumatic that hundreds of his followers joined him in taking up Islam. And still others were so thunderstruck that they continued worshipping him in secret for the next 200 years, unable to really let it go. So Shabbatai Svi, like Bar Kokhba, dampened the enthusiasm for more messiahs. But there remains a contender still today. The last leader of the Lubavitcher movement, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Although Hasidic Jews rejected Shabbatai Svi's style, they co-opted that cult of personality around their own leaders, known as Rebbe's. The same line of Schneerson's from episode 60 on the Schneerson collection. Menachem Mendel, known simply as THE Rebbe, led Chabad from its headquarters in Brooklyn until his death in 1994. But so revered was he by his followers that many refused to believe that he has actually died and have instead turned him into a messianic figure with the expectation that he will soon return to usher in the new world. While not everyone in the Chabad movement is on board, many are. And who knows, they might very well end up being right. That brings us to the biggest question of today's unsolved Jewish mystery. When is the Messiah going to appear? According to Judaism, it hasn't happened yet. But by the same token, it could happen at any moment. Any minute now. 
Some thought it would happen with the establishment of Israel in 1948. Some thought it would happen when Israel took the Temple Mount in Jerusalem in 1967. And still others believe that it's connected to activities in Israel, which is why many religious Jews and evangelical Christians zealously favor the building of Jewish settlements in the West Bank, since that used to be Jewish territory in ancient times. Only upon its return to Jewish sovereignty will we fulfill a fundamental requirement of the Messiah. But others believe that it's less about events in Israel than through our own actions. When we have all achieved a high level of piety and worship God in accordance with the laws of the Torah, only then will the Messiah deem us worthy enough to bring about the era of permanent justice. And of course, still many others don't believe in the Messianic Savior at all, leaving it all up to us, and us alone, to create the very best possible world that we can. In other words, it could still be you. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Okay, one unsolved Jewish mystery left this season, and maybe the greatest one of all. At least, my favorite. The Ark of the Covenant is the golden box inside of which was placed the original set of Ten Commandments. It was the essential relic of ancient Judaism, the focus of worship in the temple, and the key weapon in the Israelites' battles against their enemies. Until, in the year 586 BCE, it disappeared utterly and completely. Like it was there one second, and then all of a sudden, the Hebrew Bible totally dropped it. So what happened? Where did it go? That's next time, the final episode of this Season 3 on Unsolved Jewish Mysteries. Talk to you then. Lehi throat.